shouldn't surprise you, we're going to be where we were uh, this morning, looking at these 10 or 11 verses. And so what we're going to do, there are some runners around here. I think we have two runners. Who are these two runners? We have Mr. Harmon and the man, the legend, Kyle Schaefer. And so if you uh, want to participate, please just raise your hand and just so things flow, if you think, man, you want to know what? I think I want to say something after this person. Raise your hand and the other one will get you a mic and it will flow um, rather smooth, hopefully, here. So here we go. What are some observations, takeaways, insights, applications that stood out to you, whether you were here on Wednesday evening when we broke ground or, of course, this morning and now that we're digging deeper? What are some things that, that stuck out to you, applications, thoughts, observations? Who wants to go first? Things that we can just share with one another and teach one another. Okay, we got one right over here. And did I see another hand? I'm sorry. Okay, so we will start with you. The brave one. Uh, the thing that I came to notice is that the message that we had this morning was one of, it doesn't matter what you have done in the past, when God has his plan and calls you, he has his plan and calls you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was struck with when uh, Saul Paul was called by God when he was so high in his earthly status and responsibilities and his mission was so heinous that he had to be knocked down a few pegs in order for him to see what was really in front of him. Mm-hmm. And even after the spirit went into him and he went to preach, um, even people that had already had heard about him were surprised at that this man could have changed, and a lot of them were fearful, had some trepidations about him. Mm-hmm. And I think that we think that in our own lives, too, that when we've known somebody for so many years and they have presented themselves in a certain way, and then the Holy Spirit enters them and they do a 180, that we feel the same way. Are they fake? Are they just in the moment? Mm-hmm. Is this real? And I think a lot of people at that time, too, when Paul Saul was preaching, they had those doubts about him mm-hmm. as well. So I just kind of apply it to our day and age now that I think we always feel the same way that uh, those people did against this man. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have Steve back there. Then we have John Van Togren. Steve, what do you have, my friend? Okay, what I wrote this morning was, that which is acquired cheaply is devalued. Um, Cheap grace is the root of the shallow professor of Christ. Mm. Say that last part again. Cheap grace, grace. uh, you remember Bonhoeffer? Yes. Is the root of the shallow professor of Christ. Amen. Amen. Excellent point. John. So Saul was there three days without sight nor did he eat or drink, so he lost two of his senses. But God broke him. And, and I think that three days 
as I apply it to my own salvation, my life, where I became a believer, those three days, though different, were very much the same. It was a broken spirit. So we don't think about it much, but can you imagine the war between the Satan and the author of truth in the heart of Saul during those three days? Mm -hmm. That, to me, floored me, both on Wednesday night and and today, Mm -hmm. especially. It, It... there, there was a battle for Saul going on in the heavenlies for his soul. And praise the Lord, Jesus won. Mm-hmm. And he always wins. But how many times do people, when they're confronted with the truth, reject it? And Paul had no ability to reject it on his own, and Christ won the battle. It, it, to me, mm-hmm. um, that that really hit me, just in verse 9. Mm-hmm. Um, so, All right. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Dave? Um, the more we know the person of Jesus, the more we are overwhelmed with our sinfulness. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, as, as you know more and more what Christ has done for you, yeah. it, it should be something that you just go, Man, I was I was worse than I thought I was when I was saved. Like as I'm looking at what sin is and understanding it, it's just I'm, I'm that much more appreciative of what Jesus has done for me. So just a great reminder of God's grace. And and one of the most deceptive sins or darkness is self righteousness. You know, uh, it kind of strikes me if I could cross pollinate which with you and John were saying. Um, I'm sure one of the things that our adversary whispered in his ear was, you already belong to God. You are doing God's work. And I think that's a a lie that's often repeated in our hearts and lives today for those of us who have swam in the shallows of cheap grace. Um, So, very powerful. Yes. Um, Pastor Jason. So I know we're supposed to be lifting up Christ and thinking about him in all your sermons, but I have to confess for a very brief moment, I actually was thinking of John Van Togren. Uh, okay, why don't we message. go ahead? <laughs> Let me explain why John, uh, his mic John and, and some of his peers uh, in the business world, I was thinking, if you're the head of a company and you really wanted to market your products, especially to maybe people who are skeptical, you would be picking people who are very polished and who are very, very much aligned with what you think and what's in line with the company and, and the product. You wouldn't pick people who are bumbling fools and completely contradictory to what you wanted to sell. Uh, and yet it's so encouraging that God, despite being so holy and perfect, uh, I guess picks soiled instruments like us, uh, I think to the first point earlier of God's grace. And, and I think Romans 7 tells us that while Paul was not doing the exact same things he was doing before he was saved, he was still living life, like all of us here, in ways that were contradictory to God's message and knew he needed to fight that. And so it's so encouraging, I guess, that that God doesn't pick people who are just all top of the line. And I guess even as an apologetic, it's encouraging that how could this stuff be made up? Because why wouldn't you pick the best and the brightest or, or what have you? Instead, he picks soiled rags like us. So mm-hmm. uh, that was encouraging. All right. Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. Anyone else? 
applications, thoughts, things that stood out to you. I see Carol Trim over here. Okay, mine's a question. You said that um, three days was a sign of repentance. Hmm. I wanted to know if you thought this was a picture of Jesus, like his death before his resurrection, the three days he was in the grave, or then he rose from the dead, and it was victory over sin. Is that a picture of why it would be three days of repentance in that we become like him, we repent of our sins, and we mourn for the things that have happened, and then on the fourth day, his eyes were open. He has a new standing in Jesus Christ. He has a new position, and he's identified with him in his baptism. Hmm. Or am I reading into it? My answer is, I don't know. Um, As far as the three days, um, I do think uh, there is a distinction between our state and Christ's state in that he had no need for repentance. But my answer is, I don't know. And I I would love to wax eloquently on this. It's off the wall. Yeah, well, Carol, we've known each other for a while. I would would go with your gut on that. Okay, Okay, I see how it is. But my answer is I don't know. Okay. Can I ask one more? Sure, sure. When it says in verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Hmm. Do you think, does that imply that the things that he would suffer in his future ministries might be a consequences of the things he did before he became a believer? No, no, I see there with almost certainty that the more you represent Christ, the more you tend, you will associate with suffering for his name's sake. And he is going to be a very clear representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to kings, to Gentiles, and to the Jews. So because he is going to so closely be that image bearer, he will suffer just as Christ suffered. Yep. In fact, the closer we are to Christ in this world, the more suffering we will incur because of it. Which, by the way, really flies in the face of prosperity gospel, does it not? This is, and I'll just say it, this is not the title of Joel Olstein's up-and-coming book, Why You Will Suffer Till You Die, all right? But, but it's a clear picture. Uh, don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me first. I saw... A mic over here. Christy. I think that the, the focus on sight is very interesting because Paul, Saul thought he saw God. He was schooled. He was a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. He, he had sight, or so he thought. God took away his sight so that he could open the eyes of his heart. Mm-hmm. And once he did that, then the scales fell from his eyes mm-hmm. as they fell from his heart, and he was mm-hmm. given his physical sight. Amen. Amen. Good observation. Anyone else? Observations, applications, insight, thoughts, complaints, maybe anonymous feedback, anything. No, not you, Patty. All right. Anyone at all? Going once. Patty, do you seriously? Is not a complaint? Okay, go ahead and give her the mic then. Are there really very, well, let's say maybe in the United States, very many people that really, Christians that really suffer 
compared to, say, what Paul would later suffer? Um, I'm not aware of anyone in the United States who suffers like Paul did. Doesn't mean they don't. You know, suffering takes many forms. Yep. So let's quickly get this away from her. Okay. <laughs> yes, Pastor, here you go. Just a thought that came to me. Um, I know of a number of people of late because of their conviction on some of the mandates um, that they have taken a position where they believe they're standing under the direction of God and uh, they have lost jobs and lost their livelihoods. And uh, so I think we're seeing that more and more. And I'm not necessarily uh, trying to teach the church. I'm just uh, uh, making a comment on that. And for them, that was very difficult. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? Going once. Going twice. All right. Let's let's dig into this together. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit this button and we're going to condense this passage and give us a little bit more room. So we have the whole passage here, but um, create a little bit room. So let's start out with a disciple... Uh, at Damascus named Ananias. Now, the only thing that we are ever told about Ananias, especially here in this text, um, we have descriptions of him later in Acts chapter 22, is that he was a disciple. The Greek word, mathetes, which literally just means he's a person of the way. He's a Christian. He's a follower of Christ. He's not one of the 12 or by any means or the 500 or anything like that. But he is a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian. Um, now, in Acts chapter 22, verse 12, Ananias is described as a devout observer of the law. We talked about last week about how because this is outside of Israel and it is in Syria and persecution is rippling out of Jerusalem, it wasn't at the same severity. Many Christians still associated with the synagogues during this time. All right, they're fully Jewish people. They're associating in the synagogue. And so he was known as a devout follower of the law. Still had good standing there. Also, we see that he was highly respected by the Jews there in Damascus, as we see in Acts chapter 22, verse 12. So here's what I want to grab as we look at this one-time blip on the screen man who, who is going to lay hands and pray and, and be one of the instruments to impart the Holy Spirit on the greatest evangelist that the world has ever known through the Apostle Paul. What I want you to grab here is, is uh, this. With these kind of descriptors that you see up there, Ananias was likely a spiritual leader in the young church in Damascus. If he has this kind of reputation, he is certainly a part of it. But then what I really want to do is just push it a little bit further. And I, I alluded to it this morning, which means Ananias was very likely, if not certainly, would have been one of Saul's main targets when he arrived there if Jesus Christ had not intervened on the road to Damascus. So there's this really interesting contrast here. It's not just, hey, here's a nobody named Ananias and the Lord's going to send him because he doesn't have any skin in the game. But here you have one of the main targets of Paul if nothing had happened. Now, what I would what we are about to see here as we kind of transition here is a rare detail, a rare a rare detail address given within scripture. 
And I just want to unpack it real quick. He says here, go to uh, the street called Straight. Apparently, this was a straight street, so they called it Straight Street. And the interesting thing is, is this street still exists today in Syria, in old Damascus. And that is a picture of it, if you can see it there, uh, probably in the 1950s and 60s. But you can still visit this street today. In fact, um, I was reading, it goes by the name, now I'm, I'm going to slaughter this okay it goes by the name dar dar it doesn't matter because no matter what i say it won't mean anything for you so watch me slaughter it del amaskalakum all right that is my arabic all right and i hope you enjoyed it which still runs east to west in damascus and you see a picture of it there at the house named judas see now this this slowly funnels him directly to the house. So you got a street right there. Now you have a resident who lives in Damascus by the name of Judas. All right? So how many Judases live in, in on, on Straight Street in Damascus? I don't know. One, two, three, maybe? I don't know. But it certainly does narrow it down. Now this man was likely a Jewish acquaintance of Saul. A Jewish acquaintance of Saul. Um... Or one of his companions that was with him and rode with him. It is, however, highly unlikely, all right, that this is a Christian home. None of the context points to that. You have Paul's men who who heard but did not see the risen Christ. They heard something happen, they didn't see it, and they led him blind in, and they brought him to Judas's, a Jewish man likely at least associated with Saul. But not a Christian home because it would be highly unlikely as no one would want Saul in their home. Now this adds a little bit more trepidation here for Ananias, all right? It's not like he's going over to, to Brother Jason's house or, or um, Sister uh, Penny's house where there's some familiarity. This is a non-believing Jewish person associated with Saul who right now to Ananias has a reputation of devouring people of the way. So with that in mind, he says a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, Tarsus is the seat of the Roman governor here, just outside of Israel into Syria. Now, because of this, and this really plays a major role as we walk through the book of Acts and really the entire New Testament, all right? Because it was the Roman governor's seat, those who were born there were granted citizenship by birth, so this means Saul from Tarshish has dual citizenship. He is a Jew, citizen, a nation of Israel, and he has birthrights of Rome because he was born and is from Tarshish. All right? And that's an important thing to have if you're going to be the one who's going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. All right? To the Gentiles. And it's also important detail to remember that when Saul, who will become Paul, is put into prison, he's able to remind them of his rights as a Roman citizen. All right? Now, with that in mind, those little background details that will come into play a little bit later, Ananias comes in and he lays hands on him so that he might regain his sight. What Ananias does here is a couple of things, and it will briefly remind us of our study a couple weeks ago about how 
three times in the New Testament, which is a, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, which is a transitory, not normative case of when the Holy Spirit comes, all right? We have three times where there is a delay in the impartation of the Holy Spirit, and each time represents new ground to be broken in the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ. Or, in addition to that, that something needs to be authenticated, like a bunch of Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and Philip's down there, and he calls for, for Peter and John, and they come, and they lay hands, and it authenticates to them. These are equal brothers in, in Christ Jesus. There aren't two churches here. These Hellenistic Jews are not second-degree citizens in the kingdom of heaven, for there is neither Greek nor Jew, nor free nor slave, all right, but all in Jesus Christ. Now, again, this only happens three times. Now we're looking at the second time and it's even more new ground if i could use that phrase okay in fact this is earth shattering ground here it is saul has come to faith clearly this is new ground being broken clearly this must be authenticated by doing this all right by by ananias coming he is associating saul with christ with jesus and he authenticates through the giving of the Holy Spirit that this, what is happening here, is from God. But I think there is an equal practical lesson here, nestled here, that I think we can just read and go right by. And it is this, all right? It is significant here that a non-apostle is a mediator of the Holy Spirit. A non-apostle is a mediator of the Holy Spirit, the church's ministry is expanding in ways that mean non-apostles will be doing important work. Now, now you say, what has that got to do with us? What has that got to do with me? What's that got to do with, 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 with me as your pastor? There, there is some significant applications here. The church's ministry is expanding in ways in which non-apostles will do important work. In Acts chapter 8, you have Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, all right, from Samaria, if I remember correctly, yes, who baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, not an apostle, baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch shortly after he hears about the suffering servant in Isaiah, and church history tells us that he becomes the first, the Ethiopian eunuch, the first missionary over into Ethiopia, which According to a friend of mine, uh, those who associate with Christianity there, it's about 63% of the nation. And that happens with Philip. Now here we have Ananias, a one-time hitter. We never really hear from him again. We hear about him in Acts chapter 2, but we don't hear from him. All right? Here we have Ananias. Here's my point. God's work should not be stifled. And God's work should not be bottlenecked by those who hold titles. I have a title at this church, all right? I have a title. My title is Supreme Chancellor of Trinity Baptist Church. And you guys are laughing because you know that's not what I want to be. But I have a couple titles. What are, what are my titles here other than reverend, right? Because we're, we're holy, right? Yes, there's reverend. But what are some titles? I got what? Lead, pastor. Give me some others. What's that? Reverend. Reverend. Okay. Elder. Elder. Teaching pastor. pastor. I'm thinking of something more, more grand. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm not. (laughs) You said authoritarian. Would you take her out? 
But here's the point. And, and there is some important context to that. I'm not saying that. But that doesn't mean that all important work must be controlled. All important work must be managed. All important work must bottleneck or be managed by me. I must hold loosely. Hold on loosely. That reminds me of a song. But I'm going to push forward. But don't let go. All right? There's more. Hold on loosely. If you hold on too tight, you're going to lose control. You could preach a song that is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's move forward here. It doesn't mean that all important work has to be Brett Boomsma controlled and manipulated. I must hold on loosely to ministries because God, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. God can equally and as powerfully work through you as he can me. There's nothing special about me. It's us. It's Christ. I once knew a senior pastor, true story, that was only, he was the only one allowed to do baptisms in the church. He was the only the one allowed to do communions. Anything that had the appearance of being important. The appearance of being important had to run through him and be controlled by him. He said that those were the things that only the head pastor should be allowed to do. And here's a quote that I heard come right from his lips, all right? And you do not know this person, although he did make a comment earlier. No, I'm joking. It's not him. It's not him. He said, people need to see that Papa Bear is in charge. Now, a little creeped out right here, all right? You got a 60-some-year-old guy referring to himself as Papa Bear. He needs to educate himself a little bit to the context of our culture. But people need to see Papa Bear is in charge just going to shoot this out. That is arrogant. That is arrogant. Frankly, I couldn't disagree more. I don't think a church needs to see Papa Bear or, or the lead pastor in charge as much as they need to see a shepherd sacrificially leading and serving God's people and rejoicing when the church does the work of the ministry. Frankly, I am never more, I am never moved more. Is that correct English? Thank you. You guys are with me tonight. I am never moved more than when I take a back seat and watch one of you do a precious moment in ministry in this body. I love, and, and, and I want you to know this, I love sitting on the side and watching it happen. When I step aside and watch a father hug his daughter or son as they baptize them in the river, when I see you all celebrate and I'm off to the side, I want to tell you what, that's one of my greatest paydays in ministry. I feel that I am most successful for the Lord, not when I am in the limelight, but rather on the side watching you reap the rewards that God has chosen to give his bride at this local church. And I must, and we must, okay, because eventually one of you are going to be holding the title. All right, And I won't be. And it's going to ebb and flow. So we all must hold on loosely to our title and our positions and hold tightly to doing the will of God for His glory. I think about this. Why on earth would I ever want to step in the middle of something like this right here? That's not mine. That's His. It is too precious and God's glory is too important. And if a coming full circle here, 
if a no-name named Jory, I mean Ananias, Ananias, all right? Ananias, I know, that was on purpose. If a no-name like Ananias can impart the Holy Spirit, I'm one of the most important figures in the New Testament. I can take a seat, step back, and rejoice when someone serves our Lord in a meaningful way instead of me. In fact, it ought to happen more than not. And then he says this. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. There it is, highlighting in yellow. All right. I just want to point out that in Acts chapter 8, we have an Ethiopian eunuch saved. And then waiting several years until they feel fully convinced that obeying a command of Jesus Christ is something they ought to do. I understand there's a bit of sarcasm in that. And I, I want you to make sure that you are being baptized because your heart and your walk with Christ is telling you to do so. But how long will we hold off on commands from God? In Acts chapter 8, we have an Ethiopian eunuch saved and then baptized, immersed. In Acts chapter 9, we have a Jew here with dual citizenship by the name of Saul, saved and then immediately baptized. And in Acts chapter 10, notice that, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, and Acts chapter 10, we have a Roman centurion who is saved and then, going to blow your mind, he gets what? Talk to me. Baptized. Pattern, 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 pattern. Obedience, obedience. Receptive, responsive to the gospel. But I'm not going to harp on baptism here, all right? There's another detail if we look around the baptism. And it's an important one. In Acts chapter 8, we have a eunuch. In Acts chapter 9, we have a Jew with dual citizenship. In Acts chapter 10, we have a Roman centurion. I want you to notice a pattern here. A lot of times we see Scripture as though it's a personalized and individualized love letter just for me. And I want you to know there is a sense in which that is true. There is an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ found within this. But here it goes much further than that. It represents much more. I want you to grab this. These three people, the Ethiopian Saul and Cornelius the Centurion, do not represent the ideal example of how people come to Christ. These are very unique circumstances. All right? Unless you want to claim the Ethiopian eunuch's experience, Saul or the Centurion, these are very unique experiences. However, each of them, here it is, Rather than seeing this as an individualized moment, each of these represent a larger group from whom salvation is being made available on purpose. Acts chapter 8, boom. Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10, immersed, immersed, immersed. Faith, not just a Savior, but a Lord. The Ethiopian, remember Jesus' words here. You're going to, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and, 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 and to the outer ends of the earth. No one more foreign than the Ethiopian eunuch, if you remember that study. The Ethiopian represents groups to the ends of the earth, to the edge of the known world. Paul represents hardened hearts of self-righteous Jewish people within the nation of Israel. Cornelius will represent Gentiles and the powerful. Here's the point. 
that through these three representative cases, we know that salvation is for everyone. It is for all through one Jesus Christ. And to borrow from you, there's no one outside of his grace. There's no one outside of his power. Now, I want to just focus our attention on one more curiosity here. No, two more curiosity. And I'm going to call this the Q-tip curiosity. All right? And I'll tell you why in just a moment. If you are anything like me, you might be looking at this text and saying, what, does that, what is that scales falling off his eyes? Now, I don't know that there's much application here. Or fruit to be picked, but we will just touch on it for a moment for the sake of scratching our exegetical itches. This is our Q-tip moment. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of application, but we don't stick that Q-tip in our ear because we are going to grow as people, right? Why do we stick it in that ear? Now, be honest, because it what? Feels amazing. (laughs) You're tickling your soul. How many here have ever put that... Q-tip in your ear, and you're like, this is where I could live the rest of my life. Anyone? You're just like, ah, that's what this is going to be. I don't know that there's a lot of fruit, but we'll get out our Bible Q-tip. Here it is. Here are some things. There fell from his eyes something like scales. I do see, Carol, more imagery with Jonah and, and, and Saul. Three days not wanting, having hate, full of hate, repentance, finally seeing the light, aligning himself with Christ, etc. I see a little bit more parallelisms there. But here are some things I found in my reading. I'll just share them to you as Q-tip moments here. Um, the word scales here is considered in the New Testament as a, a hapax. Now, a hapax, if I have pronounced that correctly, is a word or expression that occurs only once within a corpus. What in the world is corpus? Well, that's Greek, corpus, which means body. It only appears once in a written body of work. All right? Authors can, in effect, produce hapaxes by creating words. This is the only time it is used by the author Luke in, in the book of Luke and in Acts, which is rather thick. It's the only time he ever uses this word, and it is the only time you will ever see it in the New Testament, a hapax. All right? Now, however, we do see the verb form of this word found within the Apocrypha in Tobit chapter 3 and in Tobit chapter 11. In both cases, it is used to describe the end of blindness. So he's borrowing a cultural word here, if you will, that describes the end of blindness. Saul, um, Saul is, or I should say Luke, is using a word to try and create a description I shouldn't say Luke is writing this, yes, but it's eyewitness testimony. So I don't know who the eyewitness testimony is. It could be Ananias, could be Saul, could be some of his compatriots, if you will. But here it is. They are using a word to try and describe a description of what they saw, which was the process of physical healing that took place as Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And they grab a word to go, it was something like this. And we'll take the Q-tip out, and we'll move forward. I want to end by showing one more thing. Now, in order to show this one more thing, we're going to have to back up all the way into verse 1 of chapter 9, all the way to verse uh, 19 of chapter 9, okay? But most of them are found within this text. I want to end by showing one more thing. 
We've spent some time the last two weeks talking about how salvation comes with the Lord. Let that kind of fill your minds for just a moment. To accept Jesus Christ as your Savior is to accept his authority in your life. And we can actually see that within the descriptors that, that Luke uses within these 19 verses. To just back it up again and again and again. That to receive Christ as your Savior is to receive his authority as Lord. Without exception in the Bible, this is the case. Now, I want to push this truth forward by highlighting all the different names that Luke uses to describe Christians uh, in Acts chapter 9. Now, don't touch the button yet. He could have said people of the way every single time. He could have said believers every single time. I don't know, he could have chosen the word. But look at the words he has chosen. These are all the names that are used to describe followers of the way, true followers in these 19 verses. So let's hit the button, all right? Very on, we see that we are called people of the way. We are called disciples and we are called saints, all right? And I just want to bring this up right here. People of the way means that Christ is the only way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. We are following the words of Christ. We are called disciplers, which is a fancy word for those who actually follow Christ on the way. We are called saints, which is just a fancy word for, for holy ones, meaning we are to be set apart from the world. Now, now just put that together. We're to be set apart from the world as followers of people of Christ alone on the way. And then he says, we are those who call upon the name of the Lord. I think that, let's, let's click that, all right? Those who call on the name of the Lord. Now, he describes them that way. Here's a dependence on God, all right? He calls us brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are close family in Jesus Christ. And then, the one above all else, me. Why, why are you persecuting the people of the way? No, he didn't use that. Why are, why are you persecuting my disciples, my saints, my, my brothers, my, 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 those who call on my name? He says, no, why are you persecuting me? Which highlights the indissolvable union between Christ and us. So let me revert this before I move forward. There is an indissolvable union as close family in Jesus Christ who has a complete dependence on him as those who call on the name of the Lord to be set apart from the world as saints and holy ones following him, Christ alone, because he is the only way. You can take all those words and just write, Kiros, Lord, authority, the way. Notice what we are not called. This is what the Holy Spirit says we are. Notice what words he does not use. Carnal Christians. People who do things their own way. Worldly. Independent. These are all antonyms. What you see up there. Who call on my name is dependence. We like to think there's strength and independence. Let me just hit this 
real good. There is no strength in Christianity in being alone, in being independent. We're not called worldly. We're not called independent. We're not called church forsaking. Why do we think we are in Christ if we are sin-loving, self-serving, world-clinging, independent, church-skipping people? How is it we can claim salvation and absolutely no authority of the Lord in our lives? The answer is we simply can not. It is foreign to the Word of God. My friends, we need to wake up to the false gospel that we have pushed in our churches for generations. And the sad thing is, unfortunately, the eternally sad thing is if the hardest person to reach in the world is one who already thinks they are found, what in the world have we done? This is a follower of Christ. This is someone purchased by the blood. What have we done by creating an easy believism that convinces people, young and old, that they can receive a salvation in Jesus Christ that has nothing to do with what the gospel is going to accomplish in their lives starting right now? The gospel has a purpose far greater than escaping hell. The gospel is the power of God into salvation, changing us progressively into the image of Jesus Christ. Are you more like Christ than you were a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago? Or are you the same sloppy statement agreeing, professing believer as you were on day one? There's no power in that. So here we go. Beloved, belief in Christ is not something you state. That's not belief. Belief is something you act out. And you go, oh, that's mildly dangerous. Let me, let me qualify that. I'm not adding works to salvation. Zero works. Matt Sally said it so well this morning, didn't he? It's all God. But in truth, found in the book of James, claiming faith that is not acted out is a lie. Faith that does not act out is a lie. It's nothing more than a statement. And statements that do not produce action is not belief. So, do not act on your faith. Look at those describers up there is to not have the real thing. So we're going to peel back all this busyness, all right? And we'll stay with the condensed version here. And we're just going to let the pure text be our message. And we'll do a little commentary by, because I like viewing things, that with every word we speak, I want the context and historical background study and all that to just start filling in all those places and let it pop. And a lot like Jonah, who didn't want to do these things, he was three days and nights without sight. And he didn't eat and he didn't drink 
Because that's what you do when you are repenting of your sin. And he saw the glorified Jesus Christ. And the closer you are to the light, the more you see the darkness. And you are overwhelmed at who Christ is. So he is repenting and in fasting and not drinking. Now there was a disciple. This is the only time you're going to hear about this guy named Ananias. Who said, much like Samuel and Abraham, here I am, Lord, I'm ready to go. Pen and pad out. And the Lord said, get up and go to a street called Straight. Sounds good. Sounds good. Inquire at a house by Judas. Yep, absolutely. Man named Tarshish. Absolutely, Lord, I am ready to follow you wherever you may go. Named Saul. For he is repenting. He is praying. He is seeking me. And all of that Old Testament that he has memorized since a child, especially under the Pharisee Gamaliel. This guy debated Stephen. All those Old Testament scriptures are exploding in his mind. And all of the blanks are being filled in with the name Jesus. And Ananias said, this is a suicide request, Lord. Maybe you haven't heard He's brought much harm to your holy separated saints at Jerusalem and all who call on your name, those who are dependent on you. And Lord said, go. Because I initiate everything. If you're feeling the tug of God in your life, whether it be through sanctification or salvation, it is Jesus Christ because no one seeketh after God, no, not one. No one comes to me unless the Father first draws them. All have fallen short, dead in our sins. Everything spiritually is not seeker-driven. It is Christ-initiated. For he is mine. I've taken him to bear my name for the Gentiles. Next week, I'll show you a Roman centurion. And after laying his hands on him, brother. Boy, talk about a forgiving heart. Saul, the Lord Jesus, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. People need to know this is of God. That's why you've had this delay. And immediately... There fell like a hapax all the way from the Apocrypha to here, the only time in Luke, fell from his eyes something like scales. I don't know exactly what happened there, but I'm going to tell you this. He was healed of his blindness. He regained his sight, and he said, the only thing I want is to obey my Lord. Because my food is now the same food of Jesus, which is to do the will of my Father. Obedience was his food. Our our bellies full. And he was responsive to the gospel and baptizoed, immersed himself, publicly identifying with the church, leaving it all behind. And we can't even comprehend the cultural sacrifice this moment is compared to what we put out there today. Because one of the primary identifying marks of a true believer is he loves the brethren. Do you love the church? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May it not just be a cute tip, but may it transform our lives. Thank you for these people. Bless them, Father. They belong to you. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed.